the word loss, grieving life's losses, probably the first thing that comes to our mind is grieving the loss of a spouse, a child, a parent, usually through death. But obviously, losses in life are not just about the loss through death. There can be the loss, for example, of a job. Uh, jobs that we had, that we loved, that we lost. Uh, loss of a job that we thought was really the right job for us. We were quite certain that we were the best fit and that this was God's direction, and we didn't get it. And we're baffled by it. Sense of loss. Loss of dreams, dreams that we had particularly earlier in life that never came to fruition. And many people live with that sense of loss of the dreams that were never attained. Loss of relationships, including perhaps loss of marriage through a divorce. Financial loss. People talk about a loss of innocence that they sometimes go through in life. Loss of faith. The list could go on. But our attempt this morning is to try to learn something about how we deal with loss, make sense of loss, particularly by looking at these psalms of lament. Well, let's begin with the question, what are the psalms? The psalms are the prayers and hymns of Israel, of the Hebrew people, and, you notice, I add, of the Christian church. They are very, very important for the Christian church. In many ways, you might think of the Psalms somewhat like a devotional book that you might have, or a hymnal that you might use in a church service, or for some of you, uh, the Book of Common Prayer. I suspect in many ways, the Psalms are probably closest to the Book of Common Prayer, which of course contains many of the Psalms. They were used primarily collectively uh, among the Hebrew people. That is, they were used when they gathered together because this is pre-printing press era. And uh, they couldn't take their psalms home with them. Uh, They did use them privately, mainly because the Hebrew people would memorize them. I sometimes wish we lived in an oral culture because if you live in an oral culture as opposed to a print culture, you memorize things more easily. And if you go to parts of the world where there's not as much paper and computers as we have, in these oral cultures, people remember an awful lot more than we do in sophisticated Western culture with all of our print page, etc. And so the Hebrew people did use them privately because when they would hear them in the synagogue, they would then remember them and make them a part of their own life. And of course, the Christian church has used them both personally, in their own devotional life, and collectively as we gather in the church. The Psalms are a collection over the years from various authors. Most Old Testament scholars uh, tell us that they were probably collected over a period of 500 years. And by the way, when I refer to Old Testament scholars, I do not include myself among them. I meant to say that in the introduction. I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but over the years I've loved to preach and teach from the Psalms. And so uh, I want to just put that qualifier in at the beginning. But uh, these psalms come from a wide range of time in Israel. Uh, From the period uh, around David, some maybe even predating David, all the way to the period of what we call exile or the post-exilic period. And I'll explain a little bit more of that later on. 
When we think of the Psalms, we often think of David as the primary writer or author of these Psalms, but in fact, there were various authors, many that we do not know of. At the very top of the Psalm, if you look in your Bibles, you will often see who wrote the Psalm, not in all of them. Uh, uh, We actually, uh, of course, did not have verses and chapters until the Middle Ages. I often find people are not aware of that. But uh, there were no chapters in the Bible if you had lived, say, in 900 A.D., uh, and uh, there were no verses. Uh, Basically, the chapters and the verses were added in so we could find uh, our place in the Bible. And, of course, it's a great help to us. But the way the Hebrew people could understand and differentiate the different psalms was because at the very top of each psalm, there is an indication of either the writer of that psalm or sometimes there's a title to the psalm, or sometimes an indication of why the psalm was used, or in what circumstances the psalm might have been used. And if you take a look at your psalms, you can certainly see that. The psalms cover a breadth of emotion, thought, struggle, parts of our journey of faith. And they are certainly among the best-loved portions of Holy Scripture, I think in many ways because they are so human. We read these psalms and we say, boy, that is me, that is my struggle. Or that is the praise and adoration I wish I could give to God. And so we use the psalm as a means of adoration when we feel adequate, inadequate in our own adoration and praise. And so they, they are very human psalms. You read these psalms and, and some of them, as we'll see today, you actually scratch your head and say, why is that in the Bible? We're, we're, we're almost embarrassed for it. We, 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 we don't quite know how to make sense of it. Why is this here? How do we understand this as Holy Scripture? And I hope by the end of the morning you'll understand a bit more of why. And yet the amazing thing is that in these Psalms we tr- find a tremendous sense of hope, divine presence, forgiveness. We indeed do find God in the Psalms. There are five books to the Psalms. Uh, How many of you are aware of that, that there are five books of the Psalms? Okay, some of you are, some of you aren't. If you again look, you will see book one, which is um, at the very top of chapter one. It goes from chapter one to Psalm 41. You have book two, which is Psalm 42 to 72. And then book three is 73 to 89. Book four is uh, 90, Psalm 90 to 106. And book five, 107 to 150. Now, um, they likely, the, the question has often come up, why did the Hebrew people develop books of the Psalms? And uh, we're not altogether sure, but we have at least some ideas. Uh, it probably, to some degree, represents the process of collection over the years. And so book one may have been among the earliest, and they were mostly David's psalms, by the way, in book one and parts of book two. And so it may represent the collection process over this 500-year period. To some degree, but not entirely, it represents authors, because David is primarily author of one, parts of two. Uh, you have Korah. Uh, one of the authors in book two, Uh, and then you have other forms of collection that come in book four and five. 
The other thing to note about these five books is that they were probably designed to follow the pattern of the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Each worship day in the synagogue, portions of the five books of the Pentateuch were read. And so they could go the whole way through the Torah in the period of a year. And corresponding to that were chapters from the five books of the Psalms. And so you had a psalm that was matched with a Pentateuch reading. Much like you have in in some of your traditions, you may have an Old Testament reading, you may have a gospel reading, a psalm reading, and an epistle reading. Those four. How many of you, I'm just curious, how many come from churches where you do that? Okay, a number of you do. Some of you are familiar with that. And it may well have been that this is part of the reason we have these five books. Now, each of these books ends with a very powerful, beautiful doxology. And I'd like to have these read. Um, some of you have Bibles there? Okay. Can I, do, you have, do I have a few Bibles out there? Great. Would someone volunteer to read Psalm 41, 13? I'm going to give you the five that I want read. Okay, 41, 13 back there. Someone read Psalm 72, 18 to 19. Millie, thank you. Psalm 89, 52. Someone have Psalm 89, 52 or be willing to do that. Okay. Uh, 106, 48. 106, 48. Thank you. And then uh, someone read the entire 150, which is the concluding doxology. Just six verses, all of Psalm 150. Will someone do? Thank you. All right, let's just listen to these because they are very beautiful, very powerful doxologies. Every book ends with a similar kind of refrain of giving glory to God. Uh, let's hear Psalm 41:13 first of all. Just speak very loudly. All right, 72, 18 to 19. Amen. amen. You just want to say amen and amen when you hear these, don't you? <laughs> Psalm 89, 52. And amen. You see the kind of similar refrain that each of the, book ends, and, and, uh, each of the books end with. 106, 48. All right. And then Psalm 150, the entire psalm. All right. And we would all say Amen. <laughs> Now, Psalm 150, many feel, was actually designed as the kind of conclusion to the whole Psalter, to the whole collection, so that you have this final triumphant adoration and praise to God to conclude the five books of the Psalms. One of the things I think we notice in these doxologies that conclude each psalm is the very strong, what we might call, theocentric orientation. This is not about me. This is not about my experience with God. Uh, This is not about my doubts and my struggles. Each of these doxologies are very God-centered. Now, the reason I note that is we're going to see this morning other psalms that are very human-focused. That is, they're about human struggle. They are about human loss. They are about the questions we have when we can't make sense of what happens to us in life. Uh, there, There are these human elements in the Psalms in which they, in a sense, tear open the shutters of their self and we have a chance to look inside at what's going on inside these writers of the Psalms. 
But at the very same time, you have this very strong theocentric orientation. And I think that's a very good reminder for us as we think about our faith. When I look at the history of Christianity, I often see groups of people that are very theocentric oriented, but they never get around to the experiential. And then you have others that are just very experiential oriented, and it's all about me, my, and mine in relationship to God, but you never really get around to God as the central focus. It's almost as God is a tool to use to help me along, and God gets used for our own ends and our own purposes. What you see in the Psalms, in the very structure of these five books, is a tremendous rendition of bringing God and the human element together but you always conclude with God. You begin there, you end there. And in a sense, we are packaged in between. Now let me say a word about interpreting the Psalms. And by the way, this is C.S. Lewis Institute, so I uh, had to put a book of C.S. Lewis up there, uh, Reflections on the Psalms, a very fine uh, piece uh, that C.S. Lewis did. And uh, it's, uh, he... Uh, really, I think, gives some very helpful insights into the Psalms. We often do not interpret, I believe, the Psalms properly and other portions of Scripture properly because we fail to ask some essential questions. Now, uh, for our students at the seminary where I serve, we uh, have a whole class in what's called biblical hermeneutics, which is biblical interpretation, and uh, students go for, you know, 14 weeks and 42 hours of class time and all the reading, etc. So in 10 minutes, I can hardly make sense of the issue of hermeneutics or interpretation. But let me just uh, note a couple of questions which I think are very important for us to ask as we interpret the Psalms. And to some degree, this goes for other portions of Scripture as well. One of the things to ask is, what is happening? What is happening? It's a very important question to ask whenever you read the Bible, but particularly with the Psalms, is it praise? Is it complaint? Those are two very different things. Is it thanksgiving? Is it instruction? Now, you see, if the Psalm is any one of those four, it means that we interpret it, we understand it, and we apply it very, very differently. For example, let me take a psalm that a lot of people, and we have a number of these psalms, um, some of them are actually in Psalms of Lament, but I want to just read to you a few verses out of Psalm 58. This is one of these psalms that people scratch their head and they say, why is that in the Bible? Uh, it starts out, do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No, in your heart you devise injustice and your hands meet out violence on the earth, etc., etc., and then it goes on, verse 6, and listen to the language here. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away when they draw the bow. Let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Now, when you look at that psalm, you see it matters a great deal whether you see this as a theological description or if you see it as a strong human emotional complaint against the injustice in the world and a desire for the vindication of God's justice. If you read it as a theological statement, 
you'll probably end up with this notion that we can do anything to people who are adversaries in the world because God's out to get everybody. If you read it as the lament of one struggling to make sense and yet in the end hoping for the vindication of God's own justice, which is, I think, the way we ought to interpret those psalms, which, by the way, are called imprecatory psalms, imprecations. If you read it that way, it puts it in a whole different light, doesn't it? So that's why I say we have to ask the question, what is happening in the psalm? Secondly, as we look at the psalms, it is helpful sometimes to ask who is speaking. Is this God speaking directly, through a human agent, or is it a human speaking? Now, let me make a a qualifier there. We believe that all of the Bible is God speaking, but you see, sometimes we have the utterances of God directly through prophets, etc., and sometimes, as we have in the Psalms, we have a human speaking out of their anguish, speaking out of their hurt, and it's helpful to ask the question, Who is speaking here? Is it an individual? Is it the collective people? You have some of the Psalms in which it's the entire nation, all of the people together who are speaking to God. And then you have at other times uh, what appears to be God himself speaking directly to us. God speaks through all of the Psalms. All of the Psalms are Holy Scripture but they come to us in different ways. And therefore, when we interpret the psalm, we have to interpret that. I mean, this is true of all scripture. We have a lot of things in the Bible that, uh, that we look at and we say, that's just wrong. We have rape. We have, we have uh, renditions of injustice. As you read the whole book of Judges, and it's just story after to- story and chapter after chapter of all these horrible things that happened during the period of the judges. And then, you see, you finally get the clue when you come to the end. Every person did that which was right in their own eyes. So the first 23 chapters of of Judges are not held up as positive teaching for us to follow. It's exactly the opposite, because at the end of the book, it tells us why you have all of this horrendous stuff going on in Israel. That's the kind of thing that we have to do when we interpret the Bible. It's why often people have misused the scripture because they have asked the question, what is happening? Who is speaking? And then there's a third question that I think is very helpful for us in interpreting the Psalms, and that is, what is the genre and the structure of the Psalm? One of the things that I find beautiful about God's Word is that God chose to reveal it to us in many different what we call genre. Uh, That is, various forms of literature that come to us. For example, uh, we have letters, epistles. New Testament's filled with those, isn't it? Paul's epistles, letters. You read a letter very differently than you read history, don't you? So you have letters. You have poems, such as the Psalms. You read a poem, very different than you read a letter. You have prophetic utterances from prophets or from Jesus. You have historical narratives. These historical narratives in the Bible are probably um, 
much more like stories, I believe real stories that happen, by the way, but they are more like stories than they are historical renditions according to modern history, where we're trying to make sure that we get everything in the right order and the precise timing, etc. The biblical writers who wrote, for example, Kings and Chronicles and even the Gospel writers weren't so much trying to make sure that they set forth a history in the same way that in the modern world we set forth a history. They were trying to tell the story of Jesus. And that's why, by the way, in the Gospel accounts, you will sometimes have an event and a teaching that are put together in a different place, in a different way, in Matthew than you have in Luke. Okay? So you have a different story, different teaching in Luke, and you have uh, the same teaching, but a different setting over in Matthew. That shouldn't bother us. In the providence of God, the writers were attempting to convey a point by doing that under the inspiration and the providence of Almighty God. And, and so when you, when you look at historical narratives, uh, often they are more like stories than they have a theological point. And so many times we try to read the Bible as if it were modern history or modern science. And we often then miss, I think, the theological point that God is trying to get across to us. We also have apocalyptic genre. The apocalyptic are books like Daniel and Revelation in which we have all of this imagery and these crazy things happening with, you know, angels and candlesticks and, and imagery that abound. And, and uh, you know, how do, how do you interpret those? Well, you don't interpret them in the same way you do letters. You don't interpret them in the same way you do history or poetry. You try to understand, because what was happening was when Revelation, Daniel were written, they would often use imagery because they were being persecuted. And it was a way of conveying a message in a subtle form that believers would understand, but the unbelievers wouldn't understand. And you don't really come to understand what was transpiring unless you begin to understand a little bit of that apocalyptic imagery and the setting. And then you have wisdom sayings, another whole genre in the Bible. Uh, the Proverbs. These are pithy little statements. When you read these pithy little statements, you don't read them in the same way you read an epistle. You don't read them in the same way you do apocalyptic literature. You understand them as wisdom sayings that carry a point for practical, everyday life. So my point, very simply, is we have to ask the question, what's the genre? Okay, what's being conveyed here? Or how, rather, how is it being conveyed to us? And closely related to the genre is the structure of a text. And this is particularly in, important in the Psalms since the Psalms are poetry. And so I want to say a word about Hebrew poetry. Now, you don't have to know Hebrew to understand this. In fact, I've forgotten most of my Hebrew Tom, did you have Hebrew in seminary? You remember your Hebrew? Not a bit. But we're glad we had it back there, because at least we read the commentaries and make sense of things. Um, you can actually see a lot of this kind of poetry by simply looking at your English text. The Hebrew poetry is often in a structure that is called parallelism. 
It's the most frequent form of poetry we have in the Bible, and very simply put, it is centered around two lines in which you have one line that makes a statement, and then the second line is in some manner parallel to the first line. In Hebrew, they call them sticks, uh, S-T-I-C-H. You don't need to worry about that. But uh, you, you have these lines in which there is line number one, and then line number two, which is in some way parallel. Now, how are they parallel? Well, that's why you have different forms of parallelism. Uh, for example, one is called synonymous parallelism. And uh, let's just take a look at a couple lines from Psalm 51. Against you, you only have I sinned. The second line, and done what is evil in your sight. What's the second line doing? It's just simply repeating. It's saying the same thing, but in another way. We do this in poetry, we do this with metaphors, we do this all the time, don't we? When we speak, um, especially when we think we're not being heard, we say it one way, and then we say it another way, and then we say it another way, and of course by that time we've sometimes lost the person we're trying to communicate with. But in, in Hebrew parallelism, synonymous parallelism, parallelism simply means the second line is going to state the first line, but in a little different language. Look at this. And so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Second line basically says the same thing as the first line, doesn't it? But it says it in a different way. Hebrew poetry, by the way, is so beautiful. And uh, some of our, our uh, translations, I might add, in, in the modern translations, sometimes lose the beauty of it. Uh, every now and then I pick up the old King James Version, not just for old time's sake, but because there is a beauty that they were able to preserve. And, and the worst thing you can do is paraphrase the Psalms in a way that loses the poetic sense. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, I appreciate living Bible, message, etc. But uh, especially when it comes to the Psalms, uh, there's something powerful about that poetry, and we can easy misunder easily misunderstand. And then you have here another line, Surely I was sinful at birth, and then the next line, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is parallelism. The second line, by the way, is not a metaphysical statement about when life begins. I think that sometimes Psalm 51 is used to defend uh, in, in uh, discussions about abortion to defend the idea that human life begins at conception, as if this were a philosophical, theological statement. Now, I think there are portions of Scripture we can use to defend that, and I do believe that human life begins at conception, but I'm not sure that Psalm 51 can be used in that vein. Why? Because the psalmist wasn't talking about when life begins. He was simply expressing his utter sinfulness. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. A poetic way of simply expressing his utter sinfulness. And by the way, Psalm 51 is this great psalm of confession. What's the context for Psalm 51? You know? David's sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah when he has Uriah killed by putting him in the front of battle. He's confronted by the prophet Nathan and then again in the providence and majesty, marvelous uh, uh, majesty of God, this psalm becomes part of Holy Scripture, of the canon of Scripture under the inspiration of God 
because it is a paradigm for us as we think about our own forgiveness and how we seek forgiveness from God. So it's a, it's a wonderful portrayal of, of confession. Well, it's a synonymous parallelism in the sense that the second line simply repeats the first. Now let's take a look at another form of parallelism. <clears throat> this one is called antithetic parallelism. And in this, the second line expresses much the same idea, but in a contrasting manner. It gets at something similar, but it's actually a contrast to what the first line said. Look at this one, Psalm 1-6. First line says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But look at the contrast. But the way of the wicked will be destroyed. Contrast, okay? Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Way of the wicked will be destroyed. Psalm 10-16. The Lord is king forever and ever. But look at the contrast. The nations will perish from his land. And so what the psalmist is doing here is trying to, to help us see the contrast. God is eternal. God is king forever and ever. His kingdom will never end. Nations that think they are eternal, that set themselves up as if they will reign and rule and be forever and ever, they perish from the land. The contrast between God and the nations that often seek to be divine. And by the way, this would have been understood so powerfully in the ancient world because many of the nations and the kings understood themselves as divine. The kings were divine. This was true in many of the ancient countries, Egypt, but other countries as well. So that's the antithetic parallelism. And when, when you're reading the Psalms, sometimes you see this kind of a contrast. And when you see the contrast of the second line, you really understand the marked contrast. Contemplate on it, what's going on here. And then you have what is also called synthetic parallelism, in which the second line merely extends the thought of the first line. That is, it's adding a bit more to it. It's not just a repetition. It's not a contrast. It simply is a uh, trying to fill it out a bit more. Here's an example, Psalm 9, 1 to 2. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. The second line fills it out a little more. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. Okay? Second line is kind of expressing a little more fully how you praise God. Next line, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name most high. Fills it out, extends it a bit. There are many other structures, and I'm not going to take the time. I just simply give you these as kind of a, a, a bit of a, a brief introduction. Uh, you have uh, what are called chiastic structures, which get very complex because the orders are reversed. And um, our Old Testament professor is always trying to help students discover the chiasms and so forth. Uh, but as, you're, as you are interpreting the Psalms, keep in mind they are poetry. You should never just read a couple verses of the Psalms. To really get the fullness of it and the power of what God is trying to say in the Psalm to us, read the entire Psalm. Very, very important, I think. All right, there are different types of Psalms. And uh, you, uh, you know, depending on the books you look at, you get different renditions of this, of the different kinds of psalms. I'm drawing this from a textbook by uh, Lesore and Hubbard 
two professors from Fuller Theological Seminary, and it's a text that's used in many, many evangelical seminaries and colleges. Um, basically, uh, they put it this way, there are uh, some psalms that are hymns. Uh, they are basically what we would think of today as a hymn of adoration and praise to God. Uh, then you have complaints, and that's what we're going to be looking at the rest of the day. They're the laments. Uh, some call them complaints. I'm using the language of lament, and uh, you, uh, you have these, uh, this kind of a psalm which occurs quite often, as we will talk about in a few moments. And then you have thanksgiving. You have some psalms that are just thanksgiving, which, by the way, is always different from praise. Because in thanksgiving, there is an element of the human. You are thanking God for something God has done for us, or for me, sometimes it's collectively for us, sometimes it's what God has done in my life, my family's life. But you see, the praise and adoration is nothing about me. It is focused entirely on God. And when you look at the Psalms of praise, they're not about our experience with God. They are focused fully on God. The thanksgiving, there's an element of our own self. And again, the beauty of the balance here in the Psalms, that you have both the hymns that are focused totally on God, the complaints that are about our human experience, and then the thanksgivings in which the two are blended together. You also have some psalms that are called royal psalms. These were psalms used on special occasions. And you have, of course, among the Hebrew people, they had many different festivities, special days of worship to God, in which everybody would come to Jerusalem or they would go to some center for a very special occasion of celebration. And some of these psalms were psalms for those special occasions. And the people would chant them. They would repeat them as they were walking to Zion, as they talked about. And Zion was another term for Jerusalem, uh, the center of the presence of God. And so uh, we, we have this old gospel song I remember from when I was a kid. We're marching to Zion. Remember, remember? Well, it's, it's kind of a throwback to you know the people who were marching to Jerusalem, marching to Zion, and they would repeat these psalms, often in anticipation of the great celebration, and they were for very special occasions. Some of them were used for coronations of kings, some of them were used for weddings and so forth, but they're special occasion kind of psalms. And then you have wisdom psalms. These are psalms that, that are very similar to the wisdom literature, such as the book of Proverbs, but which are really teachings about what it truly means to follow God. And uh, they, are, they are simply psalms that really echo what is a wise life? What is the wisdom in following God and allowing God to be central in our life? So that's one typology. Hymns, complaints, thanksgiving, royal psalms or special occasions, and wisdom. Here's another that comes from Walter Brueggemann. His book, The Message of the Psalms, The Message of the Psalms, Augsburger Press, 1984, and he talks about three different kinds of psalms, and I think it's rather interesting. He talks about psalms of orientation. Uh, these are psalms that affirm the world as well-ordered and reliable. They're psalms that talk about how God has made things and created things, and uh, His Word is established, His law is established, the heavens are established. It is a well-ordered world with God behind it. 
And here we have songs of creation, psalms of creation, and you do have some just wonderful psalms that focus entirely on creation. Psalm 18 is one example uh, in which it basically is, is looking at the world around us and it is a reminder that God is behind, that God is at work in holding it all together. You have psalms of the law, psalms of Torah, um, he actually puts the special occasion psalms in here. But all of these orient us to the world in a pattern and established way. Then, Brueggemann says, we have psalms of disorientation. The world as we experienced it is not often ordered and predictable. So you have these psalms that orient you. This is, a, this is our Father's world. Everything's in its place. God is in control. But then, alas, in the midst of life, we experience a sense of disorientation. Everything seems topsy-turvy. Uh, the, the unjust are getting wealthy and the righteous are getting poor. Uh, we, we live in a world where there is loss and there is anguish and there is hurt. And we don't know how to make sense of it. And these, of course, are the psalms of lament, the psalms of complaint. And Brueggemann says we really have two forms of these, the personal laments or complaints and the communal laments and complaints. And then he says we have a third type, and these are psalms of new orientation. Psalms of new orientation. And I think these are, are, are really interesting in that what Brueggemann says is God is constantly trying to break in to our lives with new things, especially after the disorientations. We think everything's going along one way, we've read the predictability of God, and then we experience the sense of disorientation. But as Brueggemann says, the cross of Christ is the ultimate new orientation in which we are being reoriented back again but in a new way, with deeper insight, deeper understanding. And it often, he says, carries with it a sense then of wonder and gratitude and thanksgiving. And so he includes many of the psalms in this category, psalms of thanksgiving, praise, some of the kingly psalms, some of the psalms that exude great confidence in God's work. But they are psalms that now reorient us in a new way towards God, towards each other, and towards life. Well, probably not every psalm fits perfectly. He acknowledges this into these three, but, but it's another helpful way of categorizing the psalms, and many have found it quite useful. Now we come to the psalms of lament. And this is what we're going to focus on the rest of our time this morning. <coughs> I want to say, first of all, a word about lament as a form of expression in the Bible, because we actually have lament in other places in the Bible, certainly not just in the Psalms. You've already noticed that some biblical scholars refer to the lament Psalms as Psalms of complaint. And in actuality, that might be a better way to describe them. These are Psalms, and uh, the whole genre of literature of the lament in the Bible, is really having it out with God. It's having it out with God. In the midst of loss, in the midst of questions, in the midst of anguish, 
in the midst of difficulties that we face. It is a complaint against God. It is a lament in the sense that it it grieves, it regrets, it complains against God, it asks questions of God. Why is this the way things are? These laments are personal and communal. The personal complaints or laments come when an individual has experienced some sense of dislocation in life. The communal are particularly when the whole nation has experienced dislocation and sense of loss. And of course, Christians are not always sure what to do with these. They seem irreverent. They seem unbecoming of God's majesty and glory. And we're not quite sure how to take them. But alas, we have a bunch of these psalms in the psalm, uh, the whole Psalter, and we have one whole book of the Bible that's a lament. What is it? Lamentations. Now let me say a bit about Lamentations, and you see here uh, an art piece of Jeremiah, his lament over Jerusalem. The, uh, The context for the book of Lamentations is that the fall of Jerusalem has just taken place. Babylon, in 586, Babylon is, by the way, present-day Iraq, so it gives it a little present-day feel when you think about this, okay? Babylon has just invaded. They had earlier come and they had taken some of the Hebrew people and they had taken them back to Babylon, okay, into exile. And then they invade Jerusalem, totally destroy the city, all of the sacred shrines, all of those symbols that were the, seventh, the, the uh, symbol of God's presence and God's providence have been removed. The people have been taken off into slavery in different ways, and life is in disarray. And so you have the lament of Jeremiah. Now, it's a very interesting lament because it is a complaint against God. On the one hand, it's also a complaint against the people. Because Jeremiah knows that the reason the captivity has occurred was because of the unrighteousness and the the injustice of the people. And so he understands that the predicament we're in is because of our own sinfulness, because of our injustice, because of what we have done. But at the same time, he has it out with God. God, did you have to do it this way? Now, I want you to listen a little bit to some of the strong emotion in the complaints against God. I'm just going to read a few segments here. Um, Chapter 1, a couple verses, chapter 2, chapter 3. Start in chapter 1. All her people groan as they search for bread. This is all, by the way, in poetic form. This is poetry, again, the Hebrew poetry. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. Is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? You you get this mix of emotion that's directed towards God, that's directed towards the people, and in the midst of people now being in poverty, 
and destitute because of the invasion of Babylon, he cries out to God. Chapter 2, first couple verses. How the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. <laughs> Picking up on a quote from the Psalms about the earth being his footstool. God's forgot that we're his footstool. That's what, basically what he's saying. You forgot the word of God, Lord. That's exactly what Jeremiah is saying to God. Don't you know the word? Don't you know the Psalms, Lord? Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of daughter Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. You go over to chapter 3. I am one who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. Jeremiah here is probably speaking both personally and collectively. It may be that he's expressing to God the anguish of the people and his own anguish in trying to make sense of this. And I, I think, at least as I read the Lamentations, I see it as kind of movement back and forth between the communal expression of the whole body of Israel and his own personal reflection as a prophet. Now remember, this is a holy man of God. <laughs> Jeremiah is called to be a prophet. Okay, Chosen while he was still in the womb, it tells us in the beginning. All right? So we don't have somebody here who's just a, a kind of wayward believer with a half-hearted faith. This is a spokesperson for God. Well, you get these complaints against God, but then you begin to get some hope. And you have chapter 3, verse 19 through 24. I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember then, and my soul is downcast within me, yet, yet, <laughs> wonderful word, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And of course, this became the text of the great hymn we sing, Great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, our Father. So in the midst of this lament, there is a ray of hope. Jeremiah can step outside of the circumstances. He can, he can step outside of his own pain. He can step outside of the collective pain of Israel. And he can say, but Lord, I do know, even though I don't feel it right now, great is thy faithfulness. And it's interesting, when you go through the last two chapters, you have him kind of moving back and forth, a glimmer of hope, and yet sometimes just being overwhelmed by the circumstances. And even in the end, there's still struggle. One of the things I think is very powerful about the book of Lamentation, it doesn't end all rosy. Listen to the last words. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. 
for Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, for Mount Zion which lies desolate, with jackals prowling over it. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? You get the sense of why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, don't you? He's weeping here. Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old, and then kind of the unexpected, you wouldn't think the, the book would end this way, but it does, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Now, that's an incredible lament. Every one of us sitting here have experienced that at some point in life. Probably not to the extent that the people of Israel did. We haven't been taken off into captivity, but we have our own personal captivities. And we have felt the same kind of anguish that Jeremiah felt, sometimes personally, sometimes collectively. And what you have here is this powerful, powerful lament where you see the sense of loss, the sense of anguish, and yet you see hope. And it is the struggle of hope. Why did God put lamentations in the Old Testament? Because it is so very real. It is true, not only in the sense that Jeremiah said it, it is true in the sense that it rings true to life as you and I know it, and it rings true to the reality of the sovereign God who is still there in the midst of it. That's why God put it there. We're left up to us. If we had determined the canon of Holy Scripture, we would never have included it, probably. But God in His providence does. Now, the whole notion of lament, um, it, at first, it may seem like a, a very ancient form of expression, a very ancient form of literature. But alas, uh, we do have some modern laments. And here's one, A Grief Observed. How many of you have read A Grief Observed? Okay, number of you. And, and it's a lament, wouldn't you say? Uh, C.S. Lewis is trying to make sense of what God was up to. Single man all his life. God brings Joy Davidman into his life. Uh, she has cancer. He experiences loss. And in the midst of all of that, he's trying to make sense of it. He's very much in the tradition of the psalmist. He's very much in the tradition of Jeremiah the prophet. And I just want to read a, a bit of this lament. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing Him, so happy that you are tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcome with open arms. In other words, what he's saying, when things are going right, boy, you want to praise, you want to adore you, and you experience God, he's there, real. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? 
it seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? Had C.S. Lewis lost his faith? No. He says he came close. But I think one of the things he learned was that part of the healing process, part of the process of growing in faith, part of the process of knowing God more fully and deeply would actually come out of this experience. And he never made sense of it. Most of us never make sense out of our laments in the sense that we can say, oh yeah, this is why this happened. And God was trying to teach me one, two, and three. In actuality, life is never that simple. It's much more complex than that. And, and, and God's much more ingenious than that to say, now, child, here's the two, three lessons to learn. It's always far more. And, and, and I think what, what C.S. Lewis captures in this modern lament is very much the kind of thing that, that Jeremiah, in his lament, experienced, in that he, he comes to experience the anguish of life and yet deep down within, and we'll talk more about why this is so in the second hour, but deep down within, he knows that God is still there even when he can't feel him. Let's take a few moments for a, a few questions uh, on what we've talked about thus far. And uh, then we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to look at two psalms of lament. We'll look at 22 and 69. And then to conclude the morning, we'll talk about what do we learn from these in dealing with uh, our own sense of loss. So let's hold any questions, comments on the loss issues until a little later, but just any questions of clarification you have from the introduction I've given to us on the psalms and the psalms of lament. Yes? And are you referring particularly to Isaiah 7.14 there? Or, or to? In the Psalms themselves. Yeah. Okay. And, and elsewhere mm -hmm. in Isaiah. Yeah. The term that's used in Isaiah, the Hebrew word there is alma, which um, can be translated young girl, and that's what some translate it, but it also clearly meant virgin. And the earlier renditions all gave, all of the English translations originally gave it the term virgin. And I think that is the right translation. And of course, when you come to the New Testament then, we, we clearly understand that that is significant, particularly taking the prophetic element of, of Isaiah 7.14 and its application then as it's uh, experienced in the birth of our Lord. 